Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Romans, the 12th chapter. And as we are doing so, to remind you that the Apostle Paul in the first 11 chapters has been largely focused upon doctrine. And in chapters 11 through 16, he will largely be focused on Christian living. Now, that's not hard and fast. There is plenty in the first chapters that are called doctrinal that also uh, reflect on Christian living and teach about Christian living. And there is plenty of doctrine in the section uh, that is given over to Christian living. But nonetheless, as a general rule, that's what we find in chapters 12 through 16. We turn to this portion that deals with Christian living. Now, I would like to ask, if you will, to pray with me, and then we will take our copy of God's Word and stand together. Let us pray. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, overcome, we pray, whatever lethargy there may be within us that would keep us and hinder us from hearing the Word of God this evening. And especially as we turn to these verses, we would ask that the youth of our church would hear these words and that they would take them to heart, understand them, pay attention to them, and that they would become verses that are so a part of their makeup as young Christians that all of their days they will live according to these verses, these opening verses of chapter 12 of the book of Romans. And these things we earnestly pray as we ask that Christians will grow, and even on a Sunday evening, that perhaps lost ones would come to know Christ. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Will you please stand as we read God's Word, Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. This is the Word of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The greatest problem facing the church of Jesus Christ today is not legalism, it is antinomianism. The thought that the law of God has nothing to do with the Christian, that we may be saved without having transformed lives, that we can know Christ as Savior without acknowledging Him as Lord. But God makes no apologies coming to His people and saying, I command. Christ is Lord, the corollary of justification by grace through faith is obedient discipleship. It is growth in grace. It is sanctification. And so what does this text tell us about that discipleship? But first, let me remind you of the connection with the preceding passage at the end of Romans 11. This comes to the end of the doctrinal portion of the book, the end of chapter 11. And you might recall that several Sunday mornings ago, I actually preached this uh, text. It is here in verses 33 and following at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory. Amen. And so at the end of chapter 11, the Apostle Paul has been focusing upon all of these great themes, the depravity of man, how we are accepted by God through the sacrifice of Jesus, uh, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, God's plan for the Jew, predestinating grace, and he is overwhelmed and overcome by the thought of these great things, and he breaks out into this doxology at the end of Romans 11. You might recall that I said in that sermon that piety is the O of verse 33 in the soul of the Christian. Well, the connection is made for us here when Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. That is, having given this great doxology, this recognition of sola deo gloria, then he is saying to the Christian, we are to live out of the fullness and recognition of who God is and all of these wonderful things that have been revealed to us about salvation in the book of Romans. So when we turn to these first verses, we first of all see an earnest appeal, therefore, the immediate context, as I've said, chapter 11, 33 through 36, but also the full force of the letter supports my statements that I'm about to make, says Paul the Apostle. Christian obedience does not find its source in human effort, but finds its source in the achievement of Jesus Christ. And the appeal is made on the basis of God's compassion to us in Christ Jesus. Calvin says, men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to mercy. All practical appeal is worthless unless it is anchored in the mercy of God in Christ. The entire epistle has stressed God's mercy. This is the ultimate motive for our devotion to the Lord for which he now calls. But notice that it's not simply mercy, but mercies. It's plural. The strongest motive for obedience are the multifarious mercies of God that Paul has dwelt upon, how we are accepted and sanctified in all of these great truths in the book of Romans. And so his appeal is full, but bursting with love when he says, I exhort you. He comes as a pastor. He speaks with a, a shepherd's heart. And he says, these things being true, I exhort you now to live a Christian life that is faithful and consistent. And I would exhort you also this evening. The second thing we notice is that this exhortation is an exhortation to offer ourselves to the Lord as a sacrifice. Again, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, the ESV translates. And so we are to offer, bringing to mind, of course, the religious rite of sacrifice. We are to be sacrifices offered to God in the Old Testament, the sacrifice of animals. In the New Testament, there is the sacrifice of Jesus in fulfillment of all of that with finality, but now out of gratitude because of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus, we are to sacrifice ourselves, offer ourselves to Jesus as living sacrifices. But notice that it says very specifically that we are to offer our bodies. 
Now, I think the AV is very good here and some other translations. Uh, yes, we offer ourselves. We offer ourselves entirely, our concrete existence, who we are, where we live, being very specific. Yet I rather think that because he uses in the original the term bodies, that he does this purposefully to summarize ourselves. The deeds of the body show the heart. And you'll recall in Romans, the first chapter, that the deeds of the pagans and abuse of their bodies contrast with our calling now to use our bodies in a way that brings honor to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 6, 20, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, I especially hope that the young people hear this because many people live today thinking that we can sin in the body but in some Gnostic way, we can assume the heart's all right, even though we are sinning bodily. But no, Paul stresses the body as in chapter 6 when he says we are to present our members to God in his service. So we offer our bodies, and we offer them as a sacrifice. A figure, of course, sacrifice was thought of passing from the offerer's possession when he offered. And so by offering our bodies as living sacrifices, we're saying, I don't belong to myself anymore. It is an act of self-surrender, continually repeated according to the verb. The characteristics of this sacrifice that you and I are to make is that the sacrifice, first of all, is a living sacrifice. That is a sacrifice that lives. It also may carry the meaning of perpetual, such as living bread, when Jesus speaks of it in John chapter 6. Old Testament sacrifices were dead. We, because of the sacrifice of Jesus now, who is our risen Lord, offer our bodies as living sacrifices. But also the body is offered as a living sacrifice that is living, but also as a holy sacrifice. Not my own, but God's. It is separate from the world. The sacrifice of the Old Testament was without blemish and well-pleasing to God. We must not use our bodies for sin because our bodies are holy. And I hope you're following in verse 1, it is acceptable because not dead but living, because offered in the merit of Christ and from a heart aflame with devotion. Paul may here simply have in mind that the service of presenting our bodies in this manner is pleasing to God. Presenting your body as a living sacrifice is an act of worship. Now, notice how it's translated here in the ESV. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And there's some connection between spiritual and the idea of logicane, the word that is used here. It can mean pneumatikos, spiritual, logicane, uh, which uh, is used in other places. This word can mean uh, rational. And so there are some who think that it should be translated your spiritual worship or service. However, I lean toward understanding that it's reasonable or rational. That is, it is worship that pertains to the mind. Uh, love with the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. It is well thought out. It is calculated. It is purposeful. Young people, God is saying to us here, we are to use our minds in understanding His truth and offering our lives to Him. My primary reason 
for thinking this is because in verse 2, there's the call to the mind renewal of the sanctified life. The word he uses here that is translated reasonable service in some translations, reasonable worship in others, latreia, actually is a liturgical word. It does mean worship. And so he is saying to us, you are to present your bodies to God as living sacrifices. Your bodily existence must be presented to him. Uh, That sacrifice is offered as an act of worship, and there is a great deal to do with how you think that is involved in this presentation of yourselves to God. Now that means, people of God, that we need to have minds that are constantly in the Word. How often have I said to us that if we are not in the Word of God radically, that we will be radically deceived by ourselves and radically deceived by our culture. What we think, as a man thinks, so is he. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so the thinking, the meditation upon the truth and the Word of God fills our hearts and enables us to fulfill the calling of verse 1. But then thirdly, we have an exhortation to nonconformity with the world and transformation in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So if our presentation of our worshipful selves to the Lord is truly offered, there will be a corresponding holiness of life. And first it is negative. He says, do not be conformed, pushed into the world's mold because of the reality of sin, because there is an evidence of grace in turning from sin that must manifest itself in the Christian life. And then he says, secondly, we are to be transformed, literally metamorphosized. We are to be transfigured. And it's a passive voice imperative mood. What does that mean? It means that it's command. It means that it's not our work ultimately, but we nonetheless are responsible to be renewed. It has been translated, stop allowing yourselves to be conformed. Continue to let yourselves be conformed. And it strikes at complacency, at staleness, at stagnation, and it points to constant renewal in the Christian walk. By the renewing of your mind, it says, the beginning of the Christian life begins a change of a state of mind. Do you remember back in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 28, where he speaks of the, the way the pagans live? And there he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Well, in contrast with that pagan way of thinking and that pagan mind, we have a mind that is to be given over to the things of the Lord. Mind, however, does not only mean the reasoning faculty, but the heart, including the reasoning faculty to which we are now to make proper Christian use. But I really do think Paul is stressing that the transformation takes place when we begin to think Christianly. So, for example, you're having trouble in your marriage, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Where are you going to turn? 
you can turn to pagan sources. You can turn to, to uh, those who have no idea who God is, what sin is, what your need is, what salvation is all about, uh, how to glorify God. Or you can begin to fill your mind with truth that transforms the way you think and therefore the way you act. And you can turn to the Word of God and to helpers that can actually help you to begin to think biblically. But you must be the one to think biblically. No one can do it for you. Now notice how he puts this in verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world. Now, the term world here is ion, eon, age. Do not be conformed to this age. Because we do not belong to this present evil age as Christians. We're different. We don't belong to it. And so resist being conformed to the standard of this age. This is always Paul's, Paul's viewpoint. He speaks of that new point of view in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, if anyone is in Christ, actually literally it says, if any man is in Christ, new creation. We belong to the age to come, Paul is saying. We already are citizens of heaven, and therefore it should determine how we think and act here and now. So there is Paul's warning not to be conformed to the standards of this age, but rather to be transformed by mind renewal. So when I say that, that I am the center of my existence, and there is no attitude of servanthood, decision-making that is not submissive to God's glory, or pleasure becomes your God, or materialism, or in relationships, uh, Christ is not honored, or in time and the use of the Sabbath day, or your priorities. Uh, even professing Christians, by the way, seem nowadays to despise the, the Sabbath. I'm really perplexed by that, and I think it needs to be addressed head on. We need to spend some time with that sometime or other in the future. Uh, your use of time is so very important. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your minutes. I mean, why is it that we can spend two hours in front of a, a, a ridiculous, <clears throat> often very unhelpful movie for our Christian walk, and we can't spend 10 minutes in prayer? There's something very wrong with Christian living when that becomes our priority. Well, that's the kind of thing Paul is addressing here. Uh, if you're bored and you're not using your time well, why should ever a Calvinist say he's bored when it's God's word in which we, world in which we live? Yeah, that's a word that shouldn't be in our vocabularies. So you see what he's saying. If our goals, if our motives and our standards are worldly, we are conformed to the standard of this world and a failure to acknowledge Christ as Lord. If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 5, you'll see very concretely what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he is contrasting the way of the world and the way of the Christian, uh, the way of the old age and the way of the new age, the way of the age to come uh, to which we belong as believers in Christ. You know these verses, but here's what Paul is saying. These are the things to which you should not be conformed. Galatians 5.16, then I say, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the lu flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. 
But if ye be led of the Spirit of God, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulsions, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All right, that's who we were, but who are we in Christ? Verse 22 and following, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. And so the Apostle Paul shows the contrast in that passage. And we're not helpless. We are no longer slaves to sin. And so he says you are to yield to a different kind of pressure now you yield to the pressure of the Spirit of God. The basis of sanctification is union with Christ and His resurrection power. We've seen that in chapter 6 and 7 and chapter 8 of Romans. And our lives are oriented toward the age to come. So we are to be transformed. We have a different kind of conformity. And that conformity is pointed out by Paul in chapter 8 in verse 29. We are not to be conformed to the world, but he says in chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so the conformity that we long for in our lives as believers is actual conformity to the image of Christ himself. Well, what is the method given in the Bible for pursuing this conformity to the new age rather than the old evil age out of which we have been delivered. Well, that's the fourth thing to see, the method that Paul has given for this in the book of Romans. Out of union with Christ, we must mortify and we must vivify. And there are three approaches to temptation and sin found in the Bible, and Paul focuses particularly on the last two. Now, here's what we are to do when we are tempted to be conformed to the things of this world, to the thinking of this world, the attitude of this world. And we're going to go out of Paul for a moment to Jesus. If you'll turn to Matthew chapter 5 again, the passage we looked at this morning in the Sermon on the Mount that we turn to illustratively. In chapter 5, 27 through 30, here's the first thing you do when you're faced with temptation to conform to this world. Uh, Matthew 5, 27, ye have heard that it was said to them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now what is Jesus saying there? He is saying, when you are tempted to walk in a way that is contrary to your Christian profession, 
the first thing you need to do is radically amputate. You cut it out of your life. Or the word that typically has been used for this is you purge it from your life. And so the first thing that you do when you're tempted, you hear me, young people, the first thing you do when temptation begins to grip you is that you purge that thing out of your life. You cut it out. You deal with sin radically. Because if you were caught in the trap and meshed, you must cut off the dear thing in order to please the Lord and walk faithfully. Because sin is powerful, sin is destructive, and sin may not be pampered, but must be hated and repented of. That's the calling of the Christian. And so we do not feed our minds and hearts with things ideas and concepts that are of this world. I'm talking about this evil world system, but rather we feed our minds with those things that are consistent with the things of God. And what is this? But as John Owen says, holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Jesus would have his bride hate what put him on the cross. He would have his bride hate the sin that put him on the cross, not flirt with it, not make room for it, but purge it out of our lives. So that's first, purgation. Young people, do you understand that? It means cut it out. Cut it out, literally. Excise it. Get rid of it. The second thing you do is you mortify it. And young people, mortify means kill it. And if you'll go to Romans chapter 6, you will remember how the Apostle Paul in that chapter has dwelt on this. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. The Apostle says, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Now, I'm only giving you this one part of this verse, but the entirety of the chapter teaches us that we are to reckon ourselves dead, and the result of that reckoning is that we actually are to kill sin in our lives. Again, as John Owen pointed out, sin cannot be contained. Listen to this, sin cannot be contained, it must be slain. Not just the deeds, but the inner motions of sin. This can only be done by dependence on the Holy Spirit. This calls for universal obedience. In other words, you cannot, you cannot kill sin A when you know that you're flirting with sin B. You can't kill sin A when, when you know you're disobedient to God in sin B. If you're not striving for universal obedience, striving for obedience in all things then you're going to be overcome by the things of this world and pressed into its mold. And you will be conformed to the world. And so the first thing you do is to purge it. The second thing you do with sin is you kill it, you slay it, and then you vivify. Vivification, that means, young people, that means you put life-giving things in the place of it. All right? Again, chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So what do you do when you're tempted to be conformed to this world rather than transformed by the image of your mind? There's so much here and there's so little time. Listen, we have to fill our minds with constant meditation upon the Word of God and the things of God. We must fill our minds with Holy Scripture. We must hear God's voice over the voices of this fallen evil world. And then we purge sin, we kill sin, and we replace it with those things that are pure and good and right and life-giving that flow out of the resurrection life of Jesus himself. Colossians 3.5 gives another example. I, I just don't have time to turn to it. So let me give you a summary of what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that is directly applicable to what he is teaching here in these first two verses of chapter 12. Paul says, this is how you're to think as a Christian. I am now in union with Christ. I'm in vital union with him. I'm alive because of him. I'm in union with Christ. I have a new identity. He is my identity. Baptism is the sign of that union. It means the first volume of my biography is shut, closed, and now I'm a Christian, and the next volume of my biography is open. The crucifixion and resurrection of Christ means that there has been a decisive breach with sin, and I now have a new Lord. And I reckon this to be, I realize by faith that it is true. I get it way down deep within. And then sin and the curse of the law have nothing to do with me. I live out of different motives. And therefore, I will not live as I once did. Because to do so contradicts my whole, to do so contradicts your whole identity as a Christian. And rather, I yield myself to the God who redeemed me. Now, that summarizes the first 14 verses of Romans chapter 6. And then, after that, in Romans 6, he goes on to stress that there's a new slavery, a slavery to righteousness. Sanctification is loving the Lord who saved me. And so the fruit of loving the Lord will be different than the fruit of loving the world. Did you hear that? The fruit of knowing and loving the Lord will be different than the fruit of knowing and loving this fallen world. And so the fruit of loving the Lord will be different. The fruit of the one is death, and the fruit of the other is life. And then Paul speaks of fellowshipping with Christ and his suffering so that the resurrection life of Jesus with whom we're in union suffuses the whole of the sufferings of the Christian life with a kind of reduplication of the sufferings of Christ in a measure within our hearts, conforming us to the image of his Son. Now John Owen, in volume two of his works on communion with God, is a volume I commend to you. It's so wonderful. It's so beautiful. And he says, we fellowship with Christ in his personal grace and in his purchased grace. And you may remember that Owen, for those of you who have read it, that Owen launches into a brief exposition of the Song of Solomon and speaking of the sweetness and delight and the safety and the support and the consolation of grace that belongs to the Christian in that book. I think modern interpreters err in not seeing the Song of Solomon as an allegory of love between Christ and his church, but I digress. Do you understand? When Paul says in this passage, be not conformed to this world, but he says to us, be 
transformed by the renewing of your mind. He has not left us already in the book without instructions for how to begin to see this happen more and more and more in our lives. Purgation, mortification, vivification. Well, we must go on. Let me say something about the result. Look at verse 2 again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. Now, what he's saying here is that the standard that God has provided is not just relatively good but acceptable and perfect. It is the necessary posture for discerning the Lord's will. And, and I, I'm going to set aside discussing for, for the moment the various viewpoints that I plan to bring tonight, how I thought I could do it, I don't know. But I do think, let me just tell you what I do think, to be precise. Paul means here that a transformed mind will actually be able to become discriminate, to become discerning, to understand good and bad, right and wrong, because our minds were filled with Christ and His Word, to discern the true from the false. Calvin says, if the renewal of our mind is necessary for the purpose of proving what the will of the Most High is, we may hence see how much this mind is opposed to God. God's will is good and acceptable, he says there in verse 2. We want to do those things that are good. We want to do those things that are acceptable to God. The will of God is perfect because it is God's will. And yes, there's still indwelling sin in the believer. But there is the one who indwells us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And every moment of life is under God's command. And the renewal of the mind begins to approve this and finds life full of meaning under his command. And you will know and you will delight in what is good and acceptable to God. Obedience in the, is the Christian's joy. It is the Christian's privilege. But it also is the Christian's struggle. Is it not? Do you not know that? Every Christian knows that there's a struggle with the flesh. The Christian mind also, however, more to Paul's point, becomes discerning and able to think in a Christian way and to make decisions that are biblically based and Christ-centered. And because our transformation is of ionic proportions, that is to say, because we belong to the age to come, and because our transformation belongs to this to this age to come proportions. That is, we are now living as those who belong to the age to come. It will begin to show in your decision-making and in your discerning, discernment. You will begin to say, you know, my, my finances, I'm not going to make decisions on the basis of, of this world. I'm going to begin to see how I can, how I can support God's kingdom and, and the age which is to come. Uh, you know, in that temptation towards sexual sin, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to follow the ways of the world. I'm going to have a transformed mind, fill my mind with Scripture. I'm going, to, I'm going to put those things to death, and I'm going to vivify and live those things that are righteous, and I'm going to become discerning 
about these things in my Christian walk and in my Christian life. And I'm going to get myself into God's Word radically. And the way this looks in the church will be developed in the remainder of the chapter in particular and on through the rest of the book of Romans. Well, people of God, Christ must rule His people. He cannot be inactive in us. And there is a a pattern that we must not allow ourselves to be conformed to and a pattern to which we are to be conformed and therefore transformed, a pattern which abides because the present evil age will not abide, but God's kingdom will abide. And in 1 John 2, 17, and the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So are we living by the demands of this or the coming age? Or as Gerhardus Voss says, the grandiose sweep and impressive inclusiveness with regard to the whole of history is drama hastening on with accelerating movement to the point of denouement and consummation. So the Christian is always living with the consummation of the age in mind determining how he thinks and acts now, because if anyone is in Christ, he already belongs to the creation, the new creation brought about by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that makes us very sober-minded, not somber, sober-minded in the midst of this present evil age. In Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, there is a place in which, as I recall, it's an interpreter's house, and as he is, is there, uh, he, he sees a variety of things that become metaphorical of the Christian life. And in one of those, um, one of those places, uh, there is the devil who is casting coals on the fire. Um, and, um, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ uh, who is... No, I have that wrong. Where's my bunion in my head? It's the devil that's throwing water on the fire. The fire is the thing of God, the things of God, you see? The things of God in our heart. And uh, as the devil is throwing water on the fire, the fire of God's word, the fire of God's life within your heart, then someone is pouring oil on the fire so that the flame comes up again. I have it right now. That's the Lord Jesus. So you mortify the flesh, you vivify, you begin to walk in a way that is conformable to the age to come, but you're not alone in this. You're indwelt by the Spirit of God. And even though the devil will throw water on the fire of the good things that God has produced through Christ in your life, Jesus Christ will pour oil on the flame. And he will keep you going all the way to the end. Oh, people of God, I wish I could have said this better. But look, young people and children especially, you're going to be so tempted in this world to live in a way that's so destructive. And you can, you can waste your whole life. Or maybe later in life you come and, and to faith in Christ, say, oh, I wish I had lived for Jesus earlier on. Do it now. Do it now. Live for Christ now. Live for him now. Don't be conformed to this world. But already fill your young minds with truth 
and with Christ and redemption and love and worship, you're not too young for this, so that you will grow up with a transformed life and can live to the glory of God. And God's people said, amen.